Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today I'm going to be talking to Eric Scheidler of the Pro-Life Action League about the future of Roe v. Wade. Will the Supreme Court, which is hearing a major abortion case in early December, overturn Roe? Will they uphold Roe? What will this mean for not only the future of the United States of America, but for the pro-life movement, for pre-born babies in the womb everywhere. Now, Eric Scheidler, uh, some of you will recognize his name. He's been on the podcast before to talk about his work at the Pro-Life Action League, which is a pro-life group based in Illinois. He is a second-generation pro-life activist, the oldest of Joe and Ann Scheidler's children. Most of you will also recognize Joe Scheidler's name. Joe Scheidler was known as the godfather of the pro-life movement, and he passed away in his 90s earlier this year. He was a legend in the pro-life movement. Eric was only six years old when his parents first got involved in the pro-life movement, shortly before Roe v. Wade's Supreme Court ruling in 1973. And so he grew up attending protests and rallies and leafleting neighborhoods and talking about abortion with friends and classmates. He's been involved with the work of the Pro-Life Action League since 1980, stuffing envelopes during the league's early years and working occasional summers during college. So Eric Scheidler agreed to come on and discuss what does this upcoming abortion case at the U.S. Supreme Court mean for the future of Roe v. Wade, for the future of the United States of America, and for the future of the pro-life movement? This is that conversation. All right, Eric, well, just to start off, looking at the Supreme Court about to hear the Dobbs case, which most people believe is is essentially a referendum on Roe v. Wade and that Roe v. Wade will either hold for another generation or fall based on the case that's going to be held here in early December. What is your view of where this is going to land? You've got Clark Forsyth, who believes that they're not going to overturn Roe fully, but they're just going to gut it further. Uh, You've got Robert P. George, who has basically just gone bullish and said in first things that Roe will fall. He's saying this is the case that's going to bring down Roe v. Wade finally. What's your view on all this? You know, I'm surprised to hear myself even saying it, but I am leaning in the direction of the Robert George camp these days. Both he and, uh, I forget his first name, but Sergis, one of his co-authors in some of the work that he's done, I have both been arguing that there's really no kind of logical way that the Supreme Court could uphold the Mississippi restriction, which cuts right into the very logic of both Roe versus Wade and the Planned Parenthood versus Casey uh, case that really controls abortion now, the undue burden standard that was established in that case, you know, without overturning Roe along the way. Because, you know, George's argument, Sergis as well, is that in order to uphold this 15-week ban in Mississippi without, you know, without overturning Roe, they would have to find some other foundation for legal abortion, for requiring the states to, to keep abortion legal in some way. Logic of Roe v. Wade, you know, the, the right to privacy and the whole cumbersome trimester system, Casey's undue burden system, they would have to concoct something else. And George thinks it's unlikely that a a Supreme Court that's willing to go this far in pushing back against the the legacy of Roe, you know, would would want to go ahead and and establish a right to abortion themselves. It's very hard to imagine Amy Coney Barrett and Neil Gorsuch, let alone Clarence Thomas and, and Samuel Alito going along with that program. I don't think 
Brett Kavanaugh would be up for that either. Maybe, maybe Roberts. I think we have some question marks about him, but I've never been an anti-Roberts guy. I've, I've looked closely at some of the rulings that have bothered conservatives and pro-lifers and found that, you know, that there's some cause to, 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 to believe that Roberts is really trying to chart a moderate but conservative course that maintains the Supreme Court's integrity. We'll, we'll see, you know, in this case, I'm sure really what we should think of Roberts in the end. But I'm kind of leaving the door open for him as well. With these justices who in one way or another we recognize as pro-life and have been with us on so many, so many cases, would they really want to be the architects of a new Roe versus Wade? that some future court would have to overturn because they couldn't do it themselves. They couldn't establish a logic to maintain some kind of abortion license that they were themselves planning to overturn in a few years or even in a decade in some future case. So that logic all makes sense to me. That said, you know, we don't always expect the court to be perfectly logical or reasonable. And I think there's an infinite opportunity for justices both left and right, to concoct a foundation for whatever result they want to see. So I'm cautiously optimistic that Robert George is right and that the Supreme Court will overturn Roe v. Wade. If they don't, I'm very concerned for the movement. I mean, if they were to take this case, the, the least likely result, I think we're pretty much all agreed, would be for the Supreme Court to strike down the Mississippi 15 week ban. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to imagine why they would have even taken this case if that's what they were going to do. All they needed to do was deny Sujirabari. Why string it out? Why give hope to the movement? Why screw around with the American people, both pro-life and pro-abortion, if that's the way that they, that they would ultimately go? Seems extremely unlikely. I think one of the, the interesting confirmations of what you're saying is that many of the abortion activists who are usually calming everybody down, while, you know, NAF and Planned Parenthood and all these major groups freak out with the explicit purpose of scaring their base into donating more money, while like realizing that the law that they're freaking everybody out about is, is going to be overturned or not going to be put into effect. You know, a judge is going to put a hold on it. But even the, the calmer heads on the abortion side are now saying like, this is it for all the same reasons that you've been articulating, that this there's no reason for them to have taken the case. There, there's a bunch of different threads I want, I, want to, I want to tug on from what you just said there. But I want to start with looking at the justices, because that's a, a very important question. Let's start with Roberts for a minute, because Roberts has disappointed me, but not in the same way. That, that he's disappointed other conservatives. Because I, I do think that in, in some instances, the most logical sort of Occam's razor explanation for, for example, joining Bostock in enshrining transgender rights is that by joining the decision, he actually blunted just how terrible and sweeping the decision would be, or he got to choose who to assign the opinion to. So I could see some being as charitable as possible. There, there's some strategy behind the scenes that could explain what he's doing. And, and most interestingly, when I'm old enough to remember when John Roberts was appointed and it was the first choice that we were given in years that the pro-life movement was unambiguously excited about. His, his wife was president of Feminist for Life for a time, like his pro-life credentials were, were impeccable. So what gives you sort of hope that, that Roberts will end up ruling the right way on this case? Well, for one thing, when it comes to explicit Abortion cases, and, and the June versus Guy is, I think, an ex- is an exception to this. But generally speaking, he's been very solid on on abortion cases. You know, the, the one case that people point to and that really freaked people out was the the Hobby Lobby 
I, was it the Hobby Lobby case or no? It was the it was the um, individual mandate case for for Obamacare, that case where he's the one who allowed Obamacare to continue. He could have ended that you know, that horrible uh, system, that horrible law with all of its abortion provisions and everything else, if he had really wanted to. But that ruling never really bothered me uh, so much. I was extremely disappointed, of course, but I didn't consider Roberts to have made an immoral um, choice there in the way that he voted. It seemed to me that what he was really trying to do was to throw this thing back to the American people and say, look, we've figured out a way to justify what Congress did because we are only a court. We're not a legislative body. It's up to the people to elect a new Congress that will modify this law or gut this law or, or completely scrap it rather than for us to, you know, intervene in this way and, and set this law aside. So I, I could see where, where Roberts was coming from in that particular case. In the, in the, the I think it was the, the case after, after June versus Guy, right? Um, they all start to blend together after a time, but we had that case where, the Supreme Court had already, back when Kennedy was on the court, had struck down the, the Texas law. Yeah, that shut down like 23 abortion clinics. The, uh, the one with the, with the hallway measurements, ambulatory hallways, admitting privileges, etc. HHB2, uh, the name has suddenly slipped me. I know. It's it's hard right now to keep all this stuff in, in mind because there's so much going on. There's Of course, there's a, the new Texas law with its strange provisions and all of that. But I think it was, was it Alabama or was it Louisiana? I think it was Louisiana had a similar law. Yeah, they had a very, very similar law. It was almost identical in some ways. And Roberts joined with the liberal justices saying, no, this law is not allowed. He was very clear that he disagreed with the ruling in the Texas case, the Texas law, but that the Supreme Court's precedent was clearly there. And he wasn't going to stand back and let a state just defy what the Supreme Court had said, which, you know, Bothered a lot of pro-lifers, but it reminds me of a ruling in my father's famous case, Now versus Scheidler. We won that case ultimately in the Supreme Court, eight to one. The one was John Paul Stevens. Three years later, we had to go back to the Supreme Court because the appellate court was essentially refusing to implement the Supreme Court's ruling that the case be vacated. And so we had to go back to the Supreme Court. And in that ruling, John Paul Stevens was with us. Stevens didn't agree with the original ruling. He was the one dissenting vote, but he did agree that the Supreme Court had, in fact, ruled the way that they ruled. All right. So it's, it's kind of similar to that in some ways. And, and maybe I'm just, you know, trying too hard to give the benefit of the doubt. But, you know, on that point, I really do feel that it is an obligation of the Christian to give the benefit of the doubt. And it grieves me to see so often how pro-life Christians, conservatives, you know, Republicans, anybody on the right in some way are so unwilling to give the benefit of the doubt to see what someone says in the worst possible light instead of finding a way to, you know, to see it in a better light. We don't want to be naive. We don't want to, you know, turn ourselves into, you know, pretzels to try to justify things in a sort of, you know, Pollyanna-ish way. But I do think we've sort of lost the instinct for giving the benefit of the doubt and seeing things in the best light, which I really think is an obligation of the Christian. Yeah, and, and, and to that point, we're all going to find out soon enough. 
whether Roberts was trustworthy or not. So there's 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 no point in, in you know, in doubting him before we need to, although I know a lot of people are nervous. So uh, looking at the, the other justices here, Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito are, are pretty much sure thing votes. Well, you know what? On the other hand, I think looking at Alito is kind of instructive um, because it maybe points to some of the same things that are going on with Roberts. You know, one of the things that that um, a, a very small handful but vocal handful of pro-lifers brought up when he was nominated to the court was a partial birth abortion ban. I believe it was in New Jersey. He had been about to write, I don't know if he was a, if he was dissenting in this case or exactly what, you know, what his argument was, where it was going to land as far as being a majority or minority opinion. But he was arguing that the New Jersey partial birth abortion ban could be upheld. And in the meanwhile, the Supreme Court had come out with a ruling that limited what what was possible for that type of a ban. And so he had to change his vote. He had to say, look, I don't agree with this, but the Supreme Court has spoken. So he was, you know, doing his duty, which is to uphold the higher court's rulings. So even Alito has come under fire. Another example would be Antonin Scalia. Scalia was part of a nine to zero majority against my dad back in the 90s, the first time that his now versus Shidler case came before the Supreme Court, when the question was, can the racketeering influenced and corrupt organizations or RICO Act be used against not-for-profit entities? It was designed for, you know, for-profit criminal enterprises. And the court ruled unanimously that, in fact, the RICO statute could possibly be used against a not-for-profit. For that, many people on the far right of the pro-life movement called Antonin Scalia pro-abort because he didn't rule with the pro-life guy, even though the principle was clear. I mean, the law was not clearly written. We even had the author of the law come before the court on our behalf, but the Supreme Court wasn't persuaded. When the case finally came before them again as an actual manifestation of a a, a RICO suit against a not-for-profit group doing social justice work, the court recognized that RICO would be disastrous for social justice movements and the freedom of speech and the freedom of protest. So we've, we've seen even justices that we consider to be rock solid, accused by some pro-lifers of, of not being strong enough. But that said, looking at the other justices, Gorsuch, I think everything we've seen from him other than you know the bizarre transgender case, which again, it admits of a conservative ruling that says, hey, look, you know, this is this is discrimination on the basis of sex, you know. Yeah, he's he's Episcopalian. So I have to assume that that's what conservatism looks like to an Episcopalian. Yeah, maybe so, <laughs> you know. So I, I but I think on, on abortion, from what we know, some of the writing that he's done on the euthanasia issue, you know, I've I've uh, become, talked to people who knew him. I believe it was Colorado where, where he came out of. They were very you know, very upbeat on, on Gorsuch when he was nominated. I think he's probably pretty solid. One of the things I'm interested in is, is Brett Kavanaugh, who, who I assume is with us, but I, I always wonder if the way he got confirmed with the sort of trial by fire and the accusations tossed at him might have turned him from, from a more a squishy vote to a more solid vote. I wonder if the confirmation process radicalized him at all. What are your thoughts on Kavanaugh? Well, you know, it's interesting with him, you know, he's another one who some, you know, more right wing pro-lifers, you know, hard right 
have wanted to criticize or not trust in one way or another. You know, they've argued, well, you know, the confirmation process maybe pushed him the other way, that he wants to kind of prove that he's not the, you know, misogynist that they were claiming that he was. Oh, right. I guess you can do that both ways. Yeah, yeah it could yeah. go both ways. Given the, the sacrifices that he's made in his own life, you know, where he's just, he's lost so much of what his social life was before, he's had to really kind of hole up. I wouldn't be surprised if, if he's more than happy to go ahead and make an unpopular ruling amongst the left, especially if it's where his, his morals and, and his sort of instincts align. And I think they do. I mean, I, I was deeply moved by, by the Kavanaugh hearings. In fact, the, 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 the day that he had to come in and defend himself, the day that, you know, that Bozzi Ford was there before, before the Senate and then he spoke, was actually my birthday. And I was bicycling around a woods on my mountain bike with my, my iPhone blaring in my, my back cycling pocket because I just I couldn't turn away from the hearings. I, I needed to hear them. And the way that he talked about uh, his high school experience, you know, you know the, the way he was with girls and, and all of it, it just really it resonated with me. I mean, it's possible that he's, you know, just an arrogant, athletic kid, you know, the kind of jocks that we all, we, we, we kind of bookish sorts, you know, often you know, kind of look down on. It could be that he's, he's one of those guys, but that's not, that's not what my instincts were telling me. I, I felt like this is a guy whose experience of being a young Catholic man at a Jesuit high school. I went to a Jesuit high school as well. It wasn't a boarding school, but, you know, it was a very elite school that each of us went to, I, I really felt like I can, I can get where this guy's coming from and how I would feel if someone had accused me of sexual impropriety when I was in high school, you know, the way that I would have responded, it just really resonated for me. And, and I, so I feel, I feel pretty confident in Kavanaugh's pro-life, you know, convictions. Will that translate into a ruling? Again, I think so. I, I think Kavanaugh is at least willing to uphold Mississippi's regulation. And I think he might be willing to overturn Roe v. Wade as well. Barrett. You know, Amy Coney Barrett is a justice that I have a little bit of personal experience with. We had a case before the Seventh Circuit, a case against the Chicago Bubble Zone Ordinance, which limits the freedom of pro-life sidewalk counselors outside abortion facilities. And uh, we brought that case before, before the court. It went to a panel of three justices, including Amy Coney Barrett, and Justice uh, Sykes, I believe her name was, who was another shortlister when uh, Trump was president for, for nomination of the Supreme Court. We got to see her firsthand in court asking questions. In fact, we, we were heartbroken when a couple of years later, before she was on the court, our case was not granted certiorari for reasons that are just puzzling to me because there's a real clear, this is a, a kind of a rabbit trail in a whole different case, but there's a clear contradiction between the Supreme Court's McCullen versus Coakley ruling, banning a buffer zone in Boston and Massachusetts, and the Supreme Court's Hill versus Colorado case from about 2000, I think it's 2000 or 2001, that allows a kind of floating bubble inside of a buffer zone. And Antonin Scalia himself pointed out that the court has just basically overturned Hill without admitting it. And we were, we were arguing, and in fact, Virginia, I think her name was Virginia Sykes, was arguing the three-judge panel that, that Barrett joined were arguing really to the Supreme Court, look, you guys have a contradiction here. So that really impressed me. I was terribly impressed with her on the bench. 
And so I was really rooting for her, you know, from the beginning, I wanted her to be the appointment when, when Kavanaugh was appointed or even before that. So I feel really good about Amy Coney Barrett, the Catholic community that she's, that she's part of, the things that she's had to say about Roe versus Wade when she's talked to pro-life groups and, and Catholic groups and, and other, other organizations really lead me to believe that, that that's where her heart is. And uh, so I think she may well be a vote to go so far as to overturn Roe and at least to allow the Mississippi type of restriction. Is there any way they can uphold the Mississippi restriction without getting rid of Roe? Like, is there any possible standard? They How, how could they possibly rearrange Roe? I'm sure they could. So this is a genuine question. How could they rearrange Roe to account for allowing, you know, a, a 10-week ban while not overturning the case? Say they wanted to shoot for, you know, this compromise solution where they give the abortion rights groups the appearance of a win, the pro-lifers, you know, somewhat of a loss while still basically giving carte blanche to pro-lifers to pass incredibly restrictive abortion laws across the country. That question really takes me outside of my area of expertise, you know, being a non-lawyer, despite all my experience in... in experience in court as a litigant. <laughs> yeah, I've been, I've been on a lot of... So I've, been, I've been, you know... I've been arrested for for my pro-life activism and, and had to counter sue and all of it. So I, I really don't know how they, they could do that. But I think what they would what they would try to do is to just is to, you know, one suggestion that's come from some on the left is that the court look to Europe and the European system like, for example, Germany. You know, in Germany, abortion is technically illegal. Yet the court doesn't actually, or I'm sorry, the, the law doesn't actually penalize someone for getting an abortion as long as they fulfill certain requirements and counseling that has to be signed off on. And there's a whole controversy there about whether the Catholic Church can be involved in, in the counseling if the end result is that a, abortion takes place. So they've essentially kind of decriminalized abortion there. Similar to some of, you know, we're in this really weird moment of cannabis being legalized and and you know, medically legalized and you know, decriminalized and different things here in the United States, most states seem to be going the direction of flat out legalizing, but there's an option of decriminalizing, saying, look, we're not going to have a penalty here. We're not going to fine you. We're not going to put you in jail. We're not going to hunt you down, but we're also not actually saying this is legal and then taxing it and all of that. So perhaps they find some way to erect some kind of a German style system where you know, Roe v. Wade is overturned, but, you know, effectively, but the court doesn't really allow there to be an enforcement mechanism. So almost like the opposite of what Texas is doing with their really clever enforcement method. That's the, that seems to me, you know, one of the likelier ways that they try to get out of it. But I really don't, I really don't see how that's, how that's going to work. Let's play out two scenarios here. And we're going to face one or the other. So this should be interesting because everybody listening is going to have a chance to see whether any of our predictions actually uh, turn out to be true or not. First, let's say the court doesn't overturn Roe. And, and one of the reasons this is interesting is because a lot of the people writing on the conservative side of things have been actually attempting to grapple with that question. So you've got somebody like Robert P. George, who's very bullish and says the court's going to overturn Roe. Um, and so we don't really need to discuss what happens if they don't. But you, there was a, a very interesting article 
that was very hard to argue with over at the Federalist a couple of weeks ago that basically said, if the court doesn't overturn Roe, then it's a culmination of four decades of failure for the legal arm of the pro-life movement, uh, the, you know, this, this careful political and legal strategy to outsource selection of justices to the Federalist Society under the assumption that we were going to get justices who would vote against Roe, and that if if we don't get rid of Roe with, you know, the, the court as stacked as it is supposed to be, we've got to burn all of that to the ground. What What do you think the reaction from the movement proper will be if Roe isn't overturned? Well, maybe step back just a little bit. I guess I have a kind of soft spot for dystopian uh, visions. If the court were to strike down the Mississippi law, I think it would be the end of the conservative movement in the United States. I think it would possibly be the end of the Republican Party being able to, to have any kind of national coalition. I would probably never vote in an election again. I mean, I say that in a moment of heat as I kind of contemplate that. But, you know, perhaps when it, when push came to shove, I wouldn't be able to disengage that way. But the that would be such a blow to to the movement that we would not recover our the political battle ever again, I think. I think it would it would we would I think a lot of pro-life activists would move in a much more, you know, AHA, the abolish human abortion direction, which is a much more aggressive kind of in-your-face approach that this group takes, especially outside of abortion facilities. And I think that would be really, really tragic. But setting to, to one side that result, which I think really would be absolutely devastating, if the court allows the, the uh, Mississippi restriction but doesn't overturn Roe v. Wade, I think we really will have a mess on our hands. Because that project, we've been, we've been working for this for so many years. And, we've, and so many of us have been forced to to cast really unsavory votes over the course of, of many, many years, not only for the president, but for, you know, for, for senators that are going to be involved in the process of, of nominating and, and, and uh, confirming justices, you know, take, for example, in particular, the issue of Donald Trump. I know people have really strong opinions about Donald Trump one way or the other, and it's not really the purpose of our conversation here to unpack Trump's presidency or Trump's character, is Trump really pro-life or not? But it is true that millions of pro-life people voted for Donald Trump only because they believed he would appoint justices that would overturn Roe versus Wade. I was in Charleston a couple of days after Anton Scalia died. The flags were still being flown at half-mast, and I went to a Trump rally, and he said from the podium, I was 15 feet away from him, Right, that there's plenty of you who don't want to vote for me and you're going to because of two words, Supreme Court. And I remember laughing because I couldn't believe how brazen he was to say that because it was true. It, it was 100% true, right? Like, but he was one of the few people who would actually say it, right? Like, you know what, suckers, you need me. And you know what? If if his justices deliver, then then, then at least at least that side of the bargain played off, if you know what I mean. Yeah, this has been a kind of open question since the day that, that Trump won election in 2016 and the fallout began, the resistance, quote unquote, resistance began. And so many, so many pro-life people who, who aren't as you know, conservative in their, in their politics really just decried this. I mean, bridges were burned, you know, horrible accusations were made. It was called a deal with the devil. The impact on the pro-life movement on you know, especially, you know, because we're also a pro-marriage movement uh, of, of voting for a serial adulterer, someone who's been, you know, married so many times, divorced, you know, 
credibly accused of adultery, certainly salacious in, in you know, so many of the things he's had to say. I mean, you remember the Access Hollywood video that came out. You know, I quit even trying to get my daughters to vote for Trump when that came out. I, cu- I couldn't. I couldn't try to tell a woman to vote for this man at that point as a dad. I still had to because of the Supreme Court, because of that issue. But the, if, if it turns out that the harm done to the pro-life movement by a be- getting, behind, getting behind Donald Trump so strongly, um, you know, was done without a payoff of the justices that he appointed really doing the right thing. You know, I, I think there's going to be a real reckoning um, that day as well. And I think it's going to make it impossible for that same argument to ever be used again. You have to vote for me because of these things that you want. I think a lot of people, and I might be among them, are going to move in a much more kind of idealistic or purist direction in our voting. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, that, that, well, that's really interesting because that's, that's, certainly, that's certainly how I feel about it. Because what's the point of voting pragmatically if, if you don't get what you're voting for in the first place? It's not pragmatic anymore, is it? Well, well, well precisely. And, and here's, here's a question I just wanted to ask you before we move to more optimistic scenarios, which is what do you say to those who are saying this out of cynicism, but I think there's probably a hint of truth to it, that a lot of Republicans don't actually want Roe v. Wade overturned for the simple reason that as long as, as Roe stands, they've had a way of just corralling this massive voting block into voting for them, regardless of, of how aligned they were on a, on a long lineup of issues, right? There's plenty of pro-life voters who are not on board with a big chunk of the GOP agenda who vote for that reason. And, and so the secondary uh, part of that would be if Roe is overturned, you're going to have a lot of Republican legislatures right across the U.S., who now have to face implementation of, of laws, whereas now they can pass these laws, satisfy their base in the assurance that these laws are going to get blocked or overturned. And this, it, the rubber will really hit the road if Roe goes and the laws they're passing are actually going to be enforced and, and we face the backlash of the pro board. So how do you think the Republicans, and I'm not talking about the truly pro-life ones like Marco Rubio, Ben Sass, Ted Cruz, et cetera, et cetera, right? There's a lot of really hardcore dyed in the wool pro-lifers in the Republican Party. So this isn't to say that a Republican and a pro-life are two different things, but there are plenty of them. Like Mitch McConnell is not pro-life the way you and I are, not from conception, neither is Lindsey Graham. There's, there's plenty of politicians who have used the abortion issue and focused on, on, on points of common ground who don't actually share the same view of human life as we do. So what's your take on how that might go? Yeah, I've seen that too. I, I've seen it, you know, particular in the comment section at the New York Times when, you know, w- when we see these people on the left, people who, you know, are even, you know, pro-abortion lawyers, you know, kind of admitting that this is it, you know, we're going to lose Roe versus Wade and what do we do next? And, and people will say just what you articulated, you know, my gosh, you know, be careful what you hope for. It seems like maybe these Republicans are going to get what they've been pretending to want all along, the overturning of Roe v. Wade. I think there are many in the Republican Party who will be devastated if, if Roe v. Wade is actually overturned. And I've wondered if that result might not just be the thing that revives the Democrats' prospects in both 20, 2022 and 2024, because right now it looks like they're doomed to lose both the Senate and the House and to have a lame duck president that nobody's really backing. 
the, you know, this could be that result of Roe v. Wade being overturned or, or even the Mississippi law being upheld in some sort of a carve out that that doesn't fully overturn Roe. That may be the, the impetus to a revival of Democratic hopes. And I, I know that would be devastating to many you know, Republican operatives for whom the Republican Party is, you know, the, the priority. But I think in some ways it doesn't really matter because the justices are you know, they're political creatures. They're appointed by politicians. They know that, you know, that that there's political pressure on them. They have legacies that they're concerned about. But at the end of the day, they are not subject to the kind of political machinations that that congressmen and senators are. So I, my, I'm hopeful that whether those Republicans were really pro-life or not when they were, you know, voting to to confirm these justices, that the justices are going to do the right thing anyway. Be really interesting to see how it how it all plays out, especially considering the threat that still is there from the Biden administration that they might try to expand the Supreme Court. We could really see, we could really see the wheels come off the bus here in the United States if if Roe v. Wade is overturned. It's in, in, just on a personal level, I'm afraid of that. It's a fear that I'm facing and willing more than willing to have to endure. But you know, I think of my my mother. She's now a widow and lives alone in Chicago, very accessible. We've had bricks thrown through the windows of my parents' house before my dad passed away. We've had vandals come out. We've had protests. You know, she gets hate mail. She gets crank calls. We're referring these types of threats to the FBI on the regular. So I'm, I'm concerned that there will be violence in the streets if the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade. And, and how does that play out? The American people aren't big fans of violence in the streets. So, you know, it could be that there's an overreaction there that leads to the pro-life position being more popular. Right now, it seems that in public opinion polls, Americans are saying they trust the Democrats more on abortion than they do the Republicans. I think that's because of the, the strangeness of that Texas law that sort of deputizes citizens to become, you know, the enforcement mechanism for their abortion ban. So, you know, it's an co- extremely complicated situation. And in some ways, I, I envy someone like yourself who can kind of watch from Canada and see what unfolds, because it's, it's, it's going to be really strange here. Well, I can assure you there's not a lot of enviable about our position over here. <laughs> yeah, I take it back. I yeah, our, our Supreme Court voted to legalize euthanasia, overturning their recent pre- uh, precedent 9-0. And then it got expanded further to include people with, with, with mental illness. So it's, it's not as volatile only because there's very little, very little resistance to speak of, I suppose would be the right way to put it. In, in America, there's still two sides fighting for the future of the Republic and they may have very different visions of it, but they are at least uh, fighting for it, which is, which is something I think that's unique to America, which is why politics feels so high stakes there in a way that it doesn't in other Anglosphere countries because there really is two competing visions and it really is up in the air as to who is going to, to, to win, which also makes it interesting. I think really the more interesting question to return to kind of how this plays out in the, the, the pro-life, you know, political realm, it, was, it wasn't so challenging for the state of Alabama, for example, to pass a total abortion ban a couple of years ago, because we all knew that it was just a gesture it wasn't even probably really intended to challenge Roe v. Wade because there were so many other challenges already working their way through. And in fact, this Mississippi case turns out to be the place where that's happening. The impact of that Alabama 
law is zero in the state of Alabama, but was actually pretty pretty pernicious up here in Illinois. We were fighting something called the the Reproductive Health Act, which uh, was going to gut all of the the pro-life measures that were still in force in our state, including any kind of oversight of the abortion industry on the ground at the facilities. That law, that that bill was languishing after Alabama passed the of that law got the wind in their sails and they were able to pass it. And so Illinois became much more pro-abortion state thanks to Alabama not actually becoming a more pro-life state with a law that wasn't going to be enforced. We saw something similar happen this, this year. Our Parental Notice of Abortion Act, which had saved thousands of babies a year since it was finally, the act was signed into law in 95, wasn't enforced until 2013 because of court challenges, almost 20 years. But it was saving thousands of children every single year. That that measure was repealed this year. And again, it was a measure we'd been fighting all year successfully. The Texas law came along, their strange heartbeat ban with the deputized citizens, you know, enforcing it. And again, they were able to, to use that, the propaganda surrounding that, to, to push this repeal of parental notice. So the rubber is going to really hit the road if the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade and essentially calls the bluff of... Texas, of, of Louisiana, of Ohio, and says, okay, do it. Now you, now you really have to ban abortion. Are you going to do it? And are you also going to implement, like Texas did to their credit, the kind of social assistance that we're absolutely going to need to sort of morally legitimate that type of a measure? Yeah, no, it's almost as if like there, there's the sound and fury of the abortion wars. But once Roe comes down, there will be a moment where the dust clears and sort of the, the smoke blows off. And then we'll really know where we are. Right. At that point, we'll actually know what's possible, what can be passed on a, on a state level. And that brings me to the so that's that's sort of the, the doomsday scenario, not only of of, well, what happens if they don't overturn it, but also what could happen if they do. What are the optimistic scenarios and the, Robin Marty, who both who you and I know, she's an abortion activist and a writer. She wrote a book called The End of Roe v. Wade, which I read last year. It's very interesting. And she basically says abortion is going to be functionally illegal in, in, in all of the southeast United States. I think there's trigger bans right now in 11 states. 15 have some variation uh, of an abortion ban. What would be your optimistic scenario of what, of what the lay of the land is if Roe goes down next year? Well, I'd like to see first that some states do flat out ban abortion. I think it's, as I mentioned, I think it's critical that they do so while providing a very well publicized and very thorough and actually practical social safety net for women facing untimely pregnancy. And, you know, we could brainstorm what some of those elements would be. I mean, certainly prenatal care, financial assistance, job placement, some kind of a mechanism to hold the male accountable, the father of the child, who so often is the one pushing for the abortion in the first place. So, you know, measures that would penalize the father for coercing, you know, it would then become an illegal abortion. I think it's also critical that any measure banning abortion or even strictly limiting it not penalize the woman. And I'm fully aware of some of the arguments that are made against that, that People say, well, logically, if it's it's if it's murder, if it's if it's homicide, and the woman's taking part in it, yeah, yeah, what, well, whatever. I mean, what it really comes down to is we have to we have to have measures that the American people can stomach. And I don't want to deprive women of their agency and suggest that they're you know not capable of making a choice 
to abort that has a moral, you know, culpability to it. But practically speaking, that particular, I mean, you often hear the, 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 the comparison made to a hitman. I mean, even Pope Francis has made that comparison. The woman's hiring a hitman. There's nothing so cold-blooded as hiring a hitman for some very personal and selfish reason, like getting an inheritance or, or, or you know, getting revenge for a, for a wrong uh, involved in a woman seeking an abortion for her own child. At some level, she knows that she's the mother of this child. It's an incredibly fraught decision. There's no other relationship and there's no other kind of homicide that is anything like abortion. And so I think it's legitimate to carve out, you know, a, a, you know, a, a absence of penalty for, for the mother that would have to be a part of any of those kinds of provisions as well. At the same time, I'm really concerned about the growth we would expect to see and are already seeing in Texas of illegal abortions, primarily through medication. This is something that's kind of flown under the radar of the abortion wars. I mean, those of us in the movement have been looking at it very closely. We've been sounding the alarm about chemical abortion, sometimes called medication abortion, you know, the RU46, mifepristone and misoprostol regimen. There's a few other you know, chemical formulations that achieve the same end of, of killing the child chemically rather than through a surgical abortion. There's the, you know, abortion pill reversal movement that's, you know, under fire from, from the abortion lobby, but doing great things and saving children after these chemical abortions have already begun. And this is something that here at the Pro-Life Action League that we're beginning to explore, you know, how do we fight against abortions that can basically be ordered through the mail? They can be sent surreptitiously from, say, Mexico or, or other countries where these pills are more readily available. How do we fight that? How do we penalize that? How do we know about it? How do we convince the federal government, which would be responsible for, 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 for enforcing laws against this kind of drug trafficking, essentially? How do we get them to do it, especially if there is a, a pro-abortion administration like the Biden administration in place? Now, those are going to be some of the problems that we have to face even in states that might pass a broad and, and otherwise perfectly admirable anti-abortion package. That's a longer and secondary discussion, I think. I've got a lot of ideas, too, about the sorts of things the pro-life movement could focus on once sort of the white whale has been harpooned. There's a lot of people putting out great ideas. Dr. Daniel K. Williams, who wrote um, a history of, of the pro-life movement before wrote called Defenders of the Unborn, recently put out a book, well, recently, it was February, called Defenders of the Cross. And he has a section on, on abortion that is fascinating. I highly recommend it to anybody who's interested in looking at he, what he tries to do is propose abortion policy that a majority of Americans could support and have, have, have been proven to reduce the abortion rate, which is really, really interesting. But that kind of uh, do you have any final thoughts on on Roe v Wade? We've covered we've covered pretty much pretty much everything. So before I let the listeners go, I thought I'd just turn it over to you for any final thoughts. Well, yeah, you know, one of the cases that I've been trying to make in the midst of this whole battle is this has become sort of a real possibility is to suggest that even pro-choice people really ought to favor or maybe I should say liberals. I mean, those who identify as pro-choice and are really involved in the movement, of course, are always going to be freaking out about that po- prospect. But liberals generally should be in favor of Roe v. Wade being overturned. Libertarians, who sometimes are are pro-choice, should be in favor of Roe v. Wade being overturned because of the way that this precedent has poisoned American politics. Our politics are, are so much more toxic because of this issue of abortion being federalized than they need to be. 
I look at my, myself, you know, I am, I'm not walking in lockstep with the conservative movement on things like, like healthcare policy or immigration policy or taxation policy. I'm only there voting for Republicans on the regular because of the abortion issue. I would love the luxury of being able to vote for governor of Illinois or, or you know, my, my senator or you know, president of the United States based on other issues than this, this, this you know, priority of the right to life of unborn children. And things that liberals care about, like immigration, like taxation policy, like health care, could see some real movement in their direction if this abortion issue weren't making so many of us, of us into single-issue voters. So that, that the toxicity of having this issue be so federalized, so much part of a culture war that's just back and forth for the benefit of the parties and their, their donor base and their voting base, I think that would be a really great result for all of America. I hope that conversation made you more optimistic than you were when you started it. It actually made me more optimistic uh, than when we started the conversation. If you want to check out past shows, head over to lifesitenews.com and click on the podcast tab. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcast content. Again, thank you so much for joining us this week, and we hope you'll join us again next week.